You are listening to The Mend Podcast. I'm Joe Roeder, and I spend my life on the water and in the field. As a fly fishing guide and outfitter, I have spent decades personally honing my skills and helping other people improve theirs. My goal is to help listeners learn from my mistakes and successes. This podcast is brought to you by Red's Fly Shop, the best place to get outfitted for your next big adventure. Hi, here we are. Thanks for listening to the Mend Podcast with me, Joe Roder of Red's Fly Shop. Thanks so much for tuning in and giving me a chance to educate you a little bit and share insights on fly fishing. So I did something a little different today. I've done it before, but I've never been really good at coordinating all this. But I just put up an Instagram story and just said, hey, I'm going to record a podcast in about an hour or so. Do you have any questions? And I got some great questions. And that's what the podcast is really going to center around are those questions. And then I will follow up at the end of the podcast and just talk a little bit about sinking lines and elaborate a little bit. I recently posted a YouTube video about fly lines in general, and it got really good positive feedback. Um, I just thought it would be a really kind of quick dive into you know the different types of lines and why you might have them and didn't expect much in the way of views and it's been pretty popular and I think I want to elaborate a little bit more on the sinking line uh, conversation there. So uh, before we get directly into the questions and answers, I hit a little couple little news piece uh, items for you to be informed of and then we'll just jump right into the questions and answers. All right, let's start with a few housekeeping items. I'm just going to rumble through these. Um, so at Reds, which is new, we just got our first big shipment of Squala gear built to fish. That is their motto. And uh, I got to agree, it is very, very well designed with the angler in mind, not some, you know, Patagonia or Arcteryx kind of overlap gear, which is great to use. Uh, but this gear is very technically oriented towards fisher- fishermen, fly fishermen in particular, and it's extremely well thought out for the fly guy. So that all landed. Check it out. Uh, you can go to our website. It's right on the homepage. But they've got some great products. Even if you're not in the market for a new piece of gear now, just check it out. They're a small company um, focused on building extremely high-quality gear. It's not cheap. You're going to buy it, and it's going to hurt a little bit, uh, but I think you're going to be glad you did in the long run because it'll be a piece of gear that gets used. So overall value, I think, is really, really high. Uh, Watch for some YouTube reviews uh, coming out on that stuff. If you're in the market for new waders, especially, or new outer layers like jackets, these are significant purchases. Um, Pay attention to that, the Squala gear. Uh, I think there's uh, some of you that it's going to resonate really well with. Again, reminder, Trout Spay Rendezvous at Reds. If you live in the Pacific Northwest or anywhere in that upper left quadrant of the U.S., Pretty cool time to come visit the Yakima Canyon. The Squala Stonefly Hatch is happening at that time. So it's a great excuse to get to the canyon, but we're going to have a Trout Spay casting events with tons of demo rods and instructors just available. No cost for the event unless you sign up for a couple of private coaching clinics. But I would get there and just watch, and then we're going to finish it off with a happy hour and kind of an open mic format where we're going to 
basically it'll be tipsy pro tips. It'll be me or some of the other pros, uh, likely beer in hand, uh, giving about four minutes worth of just tips or sharing some cool images or photos of what we've been up to recently that we think is relevant with a short, like a hard cutoff time of like four to five minutes uh, before you get booed off the off the mic. So it'll be fun to watch and there's no cost for the event. And we'll do that inside the lodge uh, when the day wraps up. A um, little bit of bad news uh, with much scrutiny. We just canceled all of our Christmas Island trips for April and May uh, just for a variety of reasons. Just just a real lack of communication on whether those trips are going to happen. And as a travel outfitter slash host and booking agent, we just we want to give people as much heads up and opportunity as we can. And if we're not feeling good about it and not confident, we have a hard time um, keeping people on the hook or in limbo. So we canceled that and we have some alternative adventures. So if you were on one of those trips, you should have gotten an email yesterday and if you didn't get that email or you didn't see it, reach out to me. Just email me at joe at redsflyshop.com. And uh, we have some other alternatives for you just to get you fishing in some tropical uh, weather should you decide to do that. Some people are just kicking their trips back. I mean, the country's been closed since the onset of the pandemic. So it's really been three years. It hasn't been fished, but also the lodges haven't been operating too. And so whether they're going to be ready to go or not. Um, when those first couple planes land, uh, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical now, much more so than I was a year ago. Uh, we've been running some saltwater trips, just doing great, really smooth operations. I mean, you can't always have perfect weather and a hot bite, um, but we've been doing pretty good. We've ran a couple of trips to Ascension Bay, to our favorite little lodge there, Casa Viejo Choc, affordable Uh, Just really homey, uh, Mayan-owned, good people, good food, great guides, and just kind of a a place that flies under the radar. They rely on booking agents like Reds to fill their schedule. They don't have a big marketing budget. They don't go to trade shows. They're not owned by a corporation. Just awesome folks. We've been going there since 2010. We have a couple more spots open. So if you're thinking about an affordable flats trip, it's a good value. It's safe, secure. And when I say safe, I don't only mean your physical safety in country, but I mean just like a good, wise investment. You're going to get there and things are going to run awesome. And uh, it's going to run really smooth. It's a trip I have a lot of confidence in. So we have a week open in April, uh, now from the 10th through the 17th, which is not on our website at the moment. But if you're thinking about a spontaneous trip, there you go. Uh, Squala Stonefly Hatch predictions. You know what? I'm going to hit that in the questions and answers because I recently saw a question that came in that asked me my prediction for that. Uh, Finally, Reds, we joined uh, the Trout Unlimited business membership. I just did that a few days ago and I met um, the the current or new uh, chair or president. I'm not sure what her title is. And uh, had a great sit down with her and just trying to get more engaged with our local Trout Unlimited chapter to team up on some projects. So I'm kind of enthused about that. Um, I want to set my expectations on how involved we are with certain projects. Uh, realistically, uh, up front, but I have some projects that we've discussed and I'm hoping to get engaged in, which are pretty significant. So I'm hoping that we can take all of that to fruition working uh, together. And then 
The other thing is I just did a bunch of fish pond video reviews on YouTube. If you haven't seen those, I got some new gear and I think that they're useful not only, um, it's not just a sales pitch for the product itself, but why some of these affordable products anywhere from 50 to 100 bucks uh, might be really helpful for keeping you organized and allowing you to be spontaneous this year. And for me, uh, I think that they're going to allow me to be able to just grab and go. Um, essentially, all my gear is organized, and I'm not looking around for where I set my boot, my wading boots, uh, or where my waders are, etc. cetera, um, or my reels or that sink tip line I've been looking for. Everything's in one spot. It's got a home base, a uh, place for everything, everything in its place. So check that out. And then uh, Sawyer Ores, uh, I placed an order with them, and I've got some new uh, kind of ore parts and accessories that I I got a new Headhunter skiff from Clackacraft this year. And I don't, I'm not in love with my ore lock or my ore system right now. So I got some new, just small parts and components that I'm gonna assemble. And I'm going to set my ores up. And so uh, I would just say watch Instagram and YouTube for some of that ore setup stuff. If you uh, if you if you row boats or you're interested in it, um, there might be a few educational things that you see on there so that you can get your ore set up right because rowing is supposed to be fun. Now, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of news stuff that I'm missing, uh, but we'll hit some questions and answers here. And I think a couple of those pieces will be answered in the Q&A questions and answers. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. And I'm going to have to stop a couple of times. So if it sounds like there's some awkward cuts, it's because I'm actually going to go check Instagram and uh, make sure I'm updated on any late incoming questions. First one, fly fishing newbie one on Instagram wants to know the four knots that every trout angler should be able to tie in their sleep. Well, first off, I like the idea that I can tie a knot in my sleep. That means I'm like fishing in my sleep, uh, which I have not quite been able to accomplish, but feel like I've been close at times. Uh, this is a pretty easy one for me. I actually went through it and wrote down five knots, and then I had to trim one out of there. But number one is just a clinch knot and being good at a clinch knot uh, or a fisherman's knot. I don't care if you improve it. It really doesn't matter that much. Uh, people can argue with me all they want, but... It really doesn't. I've guided 24 years, and I tie good knots. Usually, there's a failure elsewhere. Somebody has a wind knot in the line by the time uh, we get to the point that it's going to break. The clinch knot with modern tippet and eight wraps, seven to eight wraps, minimum of seven, max of nine, is a great knot. I think you should be able to tie that very efficiently and effectively, and that's being good at that one probably supersedes your diversity of knots, but just having a good system where you consistently grip the eye of the hook and the line and the tippet and you're good at it so that you can change flies fluidly, make adjustments, and it's not just some big stressful and dramatic ordeal uh, when you need to re-rig or change flies. The next one is definitely a triple surgeon's knot. That's um, It's a triple overhand there's some tricks to it. I'll try to remember to put a link in um, the show description to instructionals for these different knots. I'm not always great at that. Um, my phone usually starts ringing as soon as I'm off the podcast, it feels like. But uh, the triple surgeons is for tying tippet of similar uh, diameters and repairing or replacing uh, a tippet. 
You can do differing diameters. Um, maybe you go from a 3X to a 5 would be a, a big jump. Um, but once you get to like needing to go from like a 1X to a 4X, that's that's unreasonable. That's not the right knot for that. Change your taper leader or find an alternative knot like a double uni or a blood. But that's double uni and blood are not going to be one of my four. The next one is going to be the third knot, a perfection loop. A perfection loop is used for tying um, a teardrop or a perfect center of mass loop in a heavy line like a butt section uh, material. I think being able to just do loop-to-loop -loop connections, uh, and I'm going to cheat a little bit on this one here. I think being able to do loop-to-loop -loop connections and be able to tie a perfection loop in anything 15 or 20 pound test and heavier is important. But if you know the triple surgeon's knot, you can now tie a triple surgeon's loop because it's really just a triple overhand end loop. So it's like there's four and a half knots here, if you will, because in lighter tippets, say 0x on down or 1x on down, a triple surgeon's loop, although not as sexy as a perfection loop, holds better in light lighter line. So if I'm putting a loop in, say, a 1x uh, piece of tippet, I'm going to want to run a triple surgeon's loop. Even though it's not quite as pretty, doesn't doesn't pull quite as straight, it's going to be stronger than a perfection loop in that lighter line. So uh, the last one's going to be a non-slip mono loop, and that's just a, a controlled loop that you would tie a fly on with to give your fly a little bit more articulation and action. It's just a great knot. Um, I think you hook fish better. I think fish stay hooked better uh, on flies, say, bigger than, you know, say, number 10 and larger. I'm not going to say it's essential. People caught millions of trout probably on clinch knots to those sizes. And sometimes I tie a clinch knot just depending on how the, the, what the head of the fly is like, uh, and some other varying circumstances, I may just tie a, a clinch knot sometimes to my larger flies. But my preference is to tie a non-slip mono loop. And I think it's an easy knot to tie, um, especially on 3X and heavier. And on that stiff tippet, that stiff tippet does not give your fly the flexibility and agility or articulation that might be required to generate strikes. So on stiffer tippet, I think it's really critical that you do it. But I'll run a non-slip mono loop like down to 5x uh, on uh, jig head nymphs and let those jig head nymphs. I think they sink a little faster on a loop knot. Um, but I also uh, know that they articulate and move a little bit. So the four knots you have to know, be able to time in your sleep. We're looking at the clinch, not improved, just clinch, triple surgeons. And that comes with a little disclaimer that the triple surgeons loop would be included in that, a perfection loop and a non-slip mono loop. And I will put instructions to those in the show description. All right, next question. Wesley Laws asks on Instagram through the story sticker question collector, why do the majority of the cutthroats stay in the upper river this time of year? And Wesley is no doubt referring to the amazing Yakima River, which I live about five minutes from the river and I work on the river by offices within sight of the river. I'm at home right now, but I can almost see yeah, I can't quite see the cottonwood bottom along the, the river from here, but I'm close. Um, but this is going to be true in a lot of different streams. And cutthroat are a, they're the original native species um, 
to our area. The rainbows have largely been uh, introduced to the area as stalker rainbows, and it, it requires understanding the delineation between a native fish and uh, a wild fish. A wild fish is just self-reproducing. Brown trout are wild, but they're not native, let's say. The West Slope cutthroat for us is our native cutthroat species, and they subsisted in cold, clean waters, and they often prefer tributaries uh, for both spawning and early summer. Um, those tributaries just offer a little better habitat for uh, cutthroat trout. They just seem to prefer that. So in our upper system, we have a handful of tributaries uh, that are clean, clear, cold, much more uh, oligotrophic uh, ecosystems, just meaning more pure, a little less insect life under the water, but enough for trout to subsist. But those cutthroat just like the smell of that water. They like the taste of it, and that's where they tend to congregate. And the, those cutthroat will be largely migratory into those um, tributary streams. And then as they get low uh, at the end of June and July, uh, they will actually come back down those tributaries back into the main stem of the Yakima River. So they're semi-migratory uh, fish. But the the in our river, and it's like this in a lot of places, we have a large valley which has a tremendous amount of agriculture in it. It's a big fluvial flatland valley where, where I live in the town of Ellensburg. And there's um, a, it's a, there's a substantial amount of agriculture here. And um, there's also a big city. It's not I'm not just pointing fingers at the farmers. But there's also a big city here. There's an interstate. Actually, there's two interstates that come together. There's a lot of pavement, which then creates uh, runoff events. It's really a surface water management discussion, but there's runoff events and there's just more turbidity and dirty water from the valley here downstream into the Yakima Canyon where Reds is. Now, from that kind of that nutrient rich input here, there's more trout per mile in that canyon section down near Reds. There just happens to be 90% rainbows down there and from Ellensburg upstream, um, we're going to say, and this is what in the upper reaches of a river, common on a lot of rivers that aren't true tailwaters, uh, which the Yakima is not a true tailwater. It's a tailwater, but I don't want to get into the semantics of it, but it's top feed reservoirs. There's no, uh, there's not really an advantage for the trout other than they get a lot of water in July and August, but there's no food input. It's not controlled temperature during the summer, etc. So it acts like a freestone stream. Above Allensburg, we're looking at, say, 30% uh, cutthroat. The water's cleaner, it's clearer, it's colder, uh, and there are more tributaries for those cutthroat to be active. So, Wesley, it's not like just this time of year, um, but it's actually just a, it's a year-round thing um, that the cutthroat stay in the upper river. Um, if anything, I'd say we probably catch a few more cutthroat uh, in the wintertime uh, down low when the water is extremely clear um, because we have such cold uh, winters here. So yeah, a good ecological question. All right, the next question in the Instagram question collector uh, is uh, by Maverick. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, number one trout streamer this time of year. Oh my gosh, that's a hard, hard question. Um, boy. I wish I'd put a little bit more thought into this one, but um, 
Man, it just depends a little bit on what I'm doing, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to say if I'm trout spay fishing, it's definitely going to be a hibernator. I just have had more success on a hibernator um, spay fishing than probably any other, probably because I can run a really heavy sink tip, um, and that fly doesn't weigh much. It kind of has almost has like a little buoyancy, and so I think it flutters and hovers really nice. And then uh, let's just say I'm single-handed fishing, doing a mix of swinging and... Yeah, I'm doing a mix of swinging and stripping the fly. Oh, man. Probably a meat sweats in the little size. Um, that little number eight in olive. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the meat sweats. It's just, it's a great fly. It's versatile. You can really put it on the bottom um, with a heavy sink tip, and you don't snag much because it rides hook up. So I think the meat sweats is a good answer. There's a lot of other ones. Um, I don't like the idea of having to choose one. But yeah, I'm going to go meat sweats for the single hander that might be stripping the fly through some back at ease uh, or throwing it from a boat part of the time. And then if you're just like, hey, I'm just going to spay fish or I'm just going to swing and I've got access to a very fast sinking tip, that hibernator uh, fly as well is, is an excellent choice. So um, look in the show description. I'll put some notes or hyperlinks uh, to those flies. Good question. All right, the next uh, question, the CO uh, writes in, the biggest trout I've caught on the Yakima River. Somewhat of a, a trick, not a trick question, but there's two ways to answer it. Um, one is to just say in the low 20-inch range, 21, 22, I'd like to say 23, but man, when you put a tape on some of those 20-inch fish, that tape is big. I mean, it's hard to stretch it out there to that 22, 23 mark. Um, a 20-inch trout on a tape, man, it, it feels like twice as big as a 17 or 18-inch fish. And so I think a lot of people exaggerate the length of those fish. But I'm thinking 21, 22, when the biologists shock the Yakima River, usually about 19 to 21, I've read their reports, um, is about what they get. Um, they're not really finding anything in that system that's much bigger than what uh, we're catching, but there's another way to answer this, but I've caught the errant steelhead in there, you know, up to about 10 pounds. Um, our steelhead here aren't very big. We don't get very many. There is no like targeting the steelhead. Not that you would do it much different than trout fishing, but I've caught steelhead to 10 pounds and, and there's spring Chinook in here occasionally. There's silvers, um, sockeye don't bite when they're back, but we do get a mix of salmon, uh, as well. Um, which kind of keeps the big fish factor always alive um, at different times. Um, you know, the spring Chinook will show up as early as June and they're steelhead in here in the winter. So sometimes you never know what you're going to hook. A lot of people will say, oh my gosh, I hooked this fish and it was, you know, had to be 28 inches and man, it jumped all over the place. And I'd like to say or think that's a resonant rainbow, but after two plus decades of guiding and just putting my net on a lot of nice fish, typically those are going to be an errant steelhead or spring chinook. When people hook into these fish that are just the spring chinook, I mean, there's hardly a better fighting fish on the planet. I mean, those things will, even on a six weight, it might only be a seven pound or eight pound, you know, fish, just borderline jack size, and they will absolutely shred your gear. I mean, those things are crazy powerful. Spring Chinook are a fascinating species. Man, I wish they ate flies. <laughs> they just they just rarely do. Um, but yeah, sometimes when people hook into those types of so those types of fish here on the yak, um, that's often the case. Is those are those are springers or the errant steelhead in the cold season. Good question. 
All right, the next question is from Whack Page. Uh, any thoughts on bull trout? Um, any pro tips? Well, I sure have a lot of thoughts on bull trout. Unfortunately, in the watersheds where we live, uh, just north of here, especially bull trout, because they're listed as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act, there's a lot of rivers closed to all fishing. Not just closed for bull trout, all fishing. So depending on what watershed you live in here, I mean, there is extreme restrictions on fishing for and targeting bull trout. So my experience with bull trout is almost exclusively incidental catches other than when I've been fishing on the coast uh, of Washington uh, and then incidental incidental contact uh, with fish. So I don't, I don't have any fisheries in my immediate local area where we can target bull trout. I've certainly caught my fair share incidentally. Um, so first thing, my tips would be just make sure that you're within the bounds of the regulations. They're a very sensitive species. They're an indicator species, meaning they indicate whether the ecosystem is in good health. They're very sensitive to pollution and and thermal events, so warm water events, um, which is caused by all sorts of different things. You could say climate change, but we're looking at deforestation, uh, forest fires, uh, road building, you know, which would fall into the category of logging or deforestation, uh, or just land development in general. Um, so they're, they're an indicator species for that, but we just, we don't have a lot of bull trout fishing. But from my experience with bull trout, um, I've caught about everything from small nymphs to even drowned dry flies, uh, to bunny leeches, um, to big streamers, of course, and I've had them attack, you know, smaller fish on the end of my line a lot. But if I were in an area where it was legal and ethical to fish for bull trout, uh, large white streamers, especially the Dalai Lama uh, in olive and white um, is like a go-to fly. Uh, but the main thing is you just have to make sure you're working within the bounds of both um, the legal parameters and efficacy too. Um, so if you're in a bull trout rich environment, that's one thing. The other distinction is this question could be geared towards uh, like the Skagit River system in Washington. I mean, that's the most famous steelhead river on the planet. And uh, there's great fishing for dollies. Uh, Dolly Varden or char, or bull trout would be the inland um, nomenclature for that species. They're slightly different, but they're basically all the same. Uh, the, the, Latin, the Latin names are slightly different, but they're all essentially the same species. There's great fishing like on the Skagit River for dollies, uh, a sea run version of bull trout. But white streamers, uh, white streamers always seem to be the ticket for those things, man. So the dolly fishing on the Skagit's awesome. Um, that's a that's a great place to go do it. If you live in the Northwest and you've never done it, go up, go to it, man. Go swing for dollies on the Skagit. Big white dolly llama streamer, that'll do it. All right, so my tips for catching early season trout. Um yeah, this question was sent. I'm now checking Instagram by Heavy81. And uh, tips for catching early season trout are one, just a lot of patience. This idea that you're going to cover a lot of water um, and they're going to they're going to eat the first presentation that comes at them, that's just not going to happen in the early season. Generally, we're going to think slow and low, delicate presentations. Spend your time where you know there to be trout. In fact, one thing that happens a lot, especially I see this when I'm guiding a lot, is, uh, and I'll just use the boat as an example, but the same is true for fishing on foot. You know, say I pull into a spot and I drop the anchor and, and I've got some guests or friends just 
fishing over a piece of water. Well, the boat the, the boat isn't really a threat. The, the the boat isn't really a threat to the trout. They're they're curious about it, like oh, okay, something just moved in. But they have logs and debris and sticks and things float by them all the time. They're not too concerned about that, and they might shut down their feeding for a period when that 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 unknown or that UFO object approaches, right? Um, but eventually they're going to get used to that. And they're going to go, okay, that's not really a threat. I'm still here doing my thing. I'm not dead yet. And so sometimes like when you go, you step into a, a piece of water and you might be checking him thing, for instance, your first cast is typically the most valuable. The second, third, fourth, you know, are less and less and less valuable. But then there seems to be a point in time where the fish grow accustomed to your presence and they're like, okay, I'm not dead yet. Whatever this thing is that's that's kind of here is kind of here to stay, and it's not really a threat to me, especially if they're feeding on the bottom. So early season, I like Euro-style tight line nymphing. I like a lot of patience. I like moving slow, using really light line, and, and really spending time on spots where I truly believe there to be fish, and minimizing any time about spots where I'm not completely confident in. As far as fly selection... It really is very ecosystem dependent, but uh, I generally generally will say smaller flies are better. And sometimes, depending on the regulations where you're fishing, it's helpful to fish a large fly and a smaller fly because the large fly really becomes ballast and stabilizes the presentation of the smaller fly. So the big flies off and on, they're really just as ballast. I mean, it just kind of anchors. I mean, the term anchor fly is so true. It just kind of anchors the presentation in. You might pick up a fish on that big fly once in a while, but like a typical setup in this region for me would be a crayfish, a Joe's mini craw as my anchor fly because it, it, it slides across the bottom really well. It gets bit at times. But I'm really going to present like a number 18 zebra midge, black zebra midge, number 18 or 16. And that crayfish being big and kind of hard to move and a stubborn fly when it's on the bottom provides great ballast and really anchors that smaller bug in. So I would say slow and low, be patient, spend time on known spots where you're absolutely certain that there are fish there. All right, the last question was... Uh, posed by one of my buddies uh, in Chile, and it's pretty funny, but um, let's just share a short story with you. He says, where is your Peaky Blinders photo? <laughs> so the the, Chile, the Chilenos uh, love to wear these bueno hats, um, and so you might see a gauchos wear them all the time, but it's just kind of a cool style in South America, and uh, I put one of those on, and uh, being a fair-skinned uh, Americana, Americano, uh, the guides down there just thought it was hilarious. And they said, I look like I should be in the show Peaky Blinders. So it, that was my last question. Um, so if I can find that photo, I may post it as the uh, podcast thumbnail in good humor. Uh, but that wraps up our q and I'll try to do this more often and uh, hope I answered all your questions adequately. Stay tuned. I'm just going to spend about five minutes just talking about uh, sink, sinking lines and uh, some of the differences and why you might want one. Sinking lines okay there are a bunch of different options here but the main thing is if you don't currently have a sink tip line of some sort you really might be missing out on some great opportunities to fish uh, especially lakes or still waters 
there's going to be a lot of time in the spring here that, that these systems are just blown out. Rivers get high and dirty. They're still cold. After ice off, these lakes can get really, really fishy. And you can use a full sink line or a sink tip line, but I think the number one like thing I just want to tell people is if you don't have a sink tip line, get a sink tip line. It's amazing what you can do with a sinking fly line and a couple of black or olive woolly buggers. And I'm just going to use a woolly bugger, just basic fly, nothing fancy, no fly voodoo, just a couple of buggers and fishing those flies subsurface. We're talking about being able to catch early spring trout in lakes, uh, fish back eddies or swing streamers for trout on rivers. Uh, and then we're thinking smallmouth bass. We're thinking largemouth bass, panfish, perch, crappie, all sorts of different fish can get caught subsurface by just learning how to cast and strip buggers. Now, when you're choosing a sinking line, there are a couple of decisions you have to make because there are lines that, and I did a video about this on YouTube, but I thought maybe the podcast would be more helpful to just elaborate verbally a little bit more on the, the sinking lines. So there are two fundamentally different types of sinking lines. One is a full sink line where the whole thing just sinks. And those are the preferred line if you're going to lake fish and you're going to spend more than half your time or say, let's just say all of your time with a sinking line on a lake. The full sink lines are the best, um, especially one like if you're a beginning lake fisherman, just get one that sinks at an intermediate rate like a Rio uh, Camo Lux. You just... It sinks slow, you're not going to get snaggy on the bottom, you're going to be able to keep it up out, your flies up out of the weeds, and if you need to get down a little deeper, you can just be more patient. And you do what's called a countdown method, so I make a cast out to some likely shoreline, out from the shoreline, to some likely structure, and I, I just start counting. I might say one, one rainbow trout, two rainbow trout, three rainbow trout, four rainbow trout, five rainbow trout, and then I begin my retrieve. And uh, that works great. And then once I start to get strikes, I know that I need to stay in a certain level on the lake and I have a system and it's controlled and I can just be more patient. It it's, feels like it's taking forever, but what's 10 or 15 seconds for each cast in order to get a good retrieve? Um, now there are full sinking lines that sink much faster. There are ones called uh, the clean sweep. And then there's uh, Scientific Anglers makes one where Actually, the tip of the line sinks slower than the head or the body of the line, so you actually cast it out, and when you strip, your fly actually dives a little bit. Looks really realistic, um, and, and that fly is now coming toward the fish, making it the trout feel as though they can ambush it and attack it, rather than swimming up above and possibly swimming away from the fish. So sinking lines are great. It opens up a variety of different options. Uh, if you're going to throw sink tip lines, I really encourage you to consider a six weight or a long five weight, like a nine and a half or 10 foot five weight. It just makes casting those sinking lines so much more enjoyable. Um, a true sinking line or sink tip line that's integrated, meaning it's not a modular system. And these modular systems where you can loop to loop a sink tip on the end of the line, well, they seem really convenient, and I do that. I mean, for 13 bucks, you can get a sinking leader, and you can loop to loop it on the end of your floating fly line. They just cast like garbage. Um, so if you're going to be doing it very much, and you want to enjoy it and stick with it, spend 100 bucks on the sinking line. Um, 
you don't even have to buy another reel or spare spool. You can just switch lines the night before you're going to go fishing. It's not that big a deal. In fact, there's some line winding, aftermarket line winding deals you can get from Scientific Anglers or Rio. We've got them on our site that you could unwind your line and throw up a sinking line on. It takes me 10 minutes, um, the whole process. So you could do that, but those loop-to-loop modular systems like Skagit style or VersiTip systems, they cast like crap, okay? Like if you're gonna do this and do it right, spend the money, your time is super valuable. And I'm seeing more and more people go with that loop-to-loop system. That is just meant like as a temporary patch, like, oh, here's a good hole. I'm gonna try a streamer in there. And you loop-to-loop it on, you tie your fly on, you fish it for five or 10 minutes, you take it back off and you go back to your floating line. That's what that's for. Or swing fishing with a spay rod where you're not bringing those loops in and out of the guides and a spay rod having the line mass and the power it does turns over those connection points without hinging. Um, like Not like false casting a single-handed rod. False casting a single-handed rod with joints in the line just Man, you buy a, some people buy a $1,000 fly rod and then they cheap out on the sink tip. It's driving me nuts, okay, if you can't tell. So that fully integrated line is really, really handy. If you're getting into this and you're going to go, well, I'm going to split my time. I want to do the lake thing. That sounds intriguing. It's going to open up some options. I would like to fish for some smallmouth on my local lake. Get a sink tip line that sinks at about three inches per second. There's a bunch of them. I'm going to put a link to... Pretty much all of our sink tip lines, as long as you're buying it line weight per line weight, there's not really a problem. The only thing I'll say is if you're going to be blind casting, the the Rio outbound shorts are wicked awesome, meaning you're going to be casting out into open water. If you're going to be floating in a boat casting towards fine structure like sticks and logs and trees, stuff like that, that outbound is going to run away on you. You're going to wind up in the trees a lot um, because it just wants to shoot. It's a shooting head style line, so it really wants to go. And there's other ones for that, like the Rio Elite Predator, the Sonar uh, the Sonar Titan, uh, or the Scientific Angler's Trout Express. There's a bunch. There's so many dang options. But just a sink tip that is about 10 to 15 feet long, it sinks at 3 inches per second, buy a good one that is going to cast well, and buy it in that six weight range. And you can take that fly line and you can do some lake fishing with it. You can swing fish on rivers. You can park or uh, access some of those big, slow, backety pools in the cold water season like this on your local river. And you could start to probe the depths uh, with those sink tip lines, throwing sculpin patterns, buggers, leeches, crayfish, all of those swimming critters that we actively want to swim along, uh, we can do that. So I, I don't want to get too deep into the, the sink tip lines. The main thing is understanding the difference between a full sink and a sink tip. There's different rates to the sink tip. There's a few different configurations. And uh, avoid with single-handed rods, avoid just looping Versa leaders on there. Like I said, that's a Band-Aid. It, it, you do it in a pinch. You do it for a few minutes at a time. False casting with those hinge points sucks. You're going to hate it. You're not going to stick with it. You're never going to become a good streamer, fisher, man or woman if you're messing around not casting very well. So that's kind of my synopsis on sink tips. The other nice thing about sink tips, the gear set is really simple. 
in a lake, I'm probably going to run a longer leader. I might run out to five or six feet of just really straight fluorocarbon tippet. You can run a piece of 1x fluorocarbon, six feet of it in a lake, back to a little, little olive bugger, which is going to imitate either a leech or a dragonfly nymph uh, or a damselfly nymph or any kind of swimming critter, a minnow, of course, tadpole. Uh, woolly buggers can be every fish's greatest fantasy. In a lake, I run a little bit longer. I'll run about six feet uh, from my sink tip back to my fly. Uh, and then on rivers, I'm, I'm kind of like four feet max. I kind of want it close because when I'm swinging and using that current to emulate action, I kind of like my fly and my sink tip to be a little bit closer so that that sink tip is actually, uh, the centrifugal force of the, the current on the sink tip is actually swinging and presenting my fly kind of a side profile at times. So um, that's a great uh, system uh, for the rivers as far as uh, leader length goes. And then the other thing is, like, in, when I was in Chile uh, the last time, and, you know, I realize not everybody's going to go to Chile, but, like, the amount of fishing that I do in six days on a huge variety of waters, I mean, it's the same latitude that I live at here. It's it's 47 degrees uh, south, and it's 47 degrees north here. I mean, it's like very similar ecosystems. It's just super wild, um, and there's a lot of water, and... I learn a ton about fishing down there, but one thing we do in the lakes down there is we strip pat stones because they look so much like a dragonfly nymph, and that's something I never did here in lakes until I went to Chile. And man, I started stripping on sinking lines, uh, lightly weighted pat stones, olives and browns both, and man, it is a killer, killer for both trout and bass in still water fisheries. So that's the hot tip. Uh, that I'm going to leave uh, this podcast with. But yeah, thanks for joining me and listening. Share this with your friends. Like and comment. Share it. Uh, subscribe. Uh, I'd love to stay in touch with you. And I will, if you're not following us on Instagram, jump over and do that because I will, it'll be pretty spontaneous. Um, I'll do a little Instagram story thing asking for questions. But you can also email me. Um, my next podcast is going to be specifically about switch rod lines uh, and things uh, related to setting up switch rods. And so email me at joe at redsflyshop.com and just put podcast in the headline and I will jump on it.